0: Hi, it's Benjamin from They Walk Among Us, the podcast about UK true crime, and we are currently being sponsored by Revolut, the one app for all things money. Money can seem a bit complicated and confusing, but Revolut are here to change that. The financial super app already has over 20 million people using it. You can send, spend and save money hassle-free, even spend abroad like a local with great rates. Download the app and sign up in just a few taps. Get three months of Revolut Premium for free if you use the link get.revolut.com forward slash walk among us. Available in the UK. T&C Supply.
1: With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast produced by Fremantle celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Zing Zing, at the Bailey's Book Bar, Waterstones, Tottenham Court Road, London. The interplay between fact and fiction has always fascinated writers, drawing inspiration from grand events, big historical personalities, or hidden stories from the past that can resonate with our lives. In this spirit, the Women's Prize team have brought together a panel of brilliant female historians to discuss inspirational women from history, including those who have unjustly been written out of the narrative. With Bailey's cocktails in hand, the excited crowd is getting ready to hear this year's Women's Prize Chair of Judges, author and broadcaster, Professor Kate Williams, Specialist in European colonial and post-colonial history, Professor Olivette Otelli, and author, broadcaster, and classicist, Bethany Hughes. And the great Kate Moss, best-selling author, Women's Prize for Fiction, founder, director, and all-around inspiring woman, is about to kick things off.
2: So I'm going to just ask each of our panelists to say a few words about themselves, how they got to be interested in the, both history but also women within history. And then we're going to have a general discussion about how women vanish from our history books and why we think that might be. So, Olivet, I'm going to start with you because you're right next to me. (laughs) Okay.
3: Um, How I get into history. I chose history because it was something to do with social justice, something to do with understanding how we could be so mean to each other and and actually be able to create some marvellous things and see uh, how we, as communities, we can uh, interact and we have been interacting. So I was born in, in, in Cameroon, in Africa, so how, and, and grew up in Paris, and how this, these journeys have been done by other people before me. So that's how I got into history. That's amazing. And did you um, straight away find that you were
2: drawn to a particular period of history, or was it the idea of particular stories? all the way through different periods that you were trying to tease out?
3: A bit of both, because I, started, I wanted to study the French Revolution and I was told by the French that uh, it wasn't something that was related to my history, oh. apparently, uh, but it is actually, because yeah. Napoleon was uh, reestablished slavery uh, uh, in, the col- in French colonies. But anyway, so I kind of <laughs> changed tack and started looking at, because Cameroon is both Francophone and Anglophone, so I started looking at the competition and I was fascinated and I'm still, I still am fascinated by the competition between the French and the British yeah, yeah. at all levels. And <laughs> so I wanted to look yeah, yeah. at that history. What, what happened and how it started and woven into that the colonial bits because it's part of my, my uh, heritage and identity. So I found what I needed in there. And did
2: you um, feel a kind of double responsibility? On the one hand, your own history, which you were investigating through that French and British colonial um, well, aggression, really. really. But did you also feel that you were particularly attracted to women's voices within yes. the record? And and were they more visible or less visible? Or was it actually... That wasn't really how it showed itself at
3: that moment? Oh, they, they, they're really invisible when it comes to colonial history. It's a very male-dominated uh, kind of... Um, Shall we say discipline or area of research? But women were invisible, and when they were visible, they were somebody's wife or somebody's daughter. So I kind of I got really frustrated. And as I was researching, these were about women's uh, stories and personal journeys. Mm. So, for example, in the Caribbean, I, I came across uh, Nanny Maroon, for example, uh, you know, fighter, and I love that. Well, okay, she got killed, but I love the fact that you know, I love the fact that she was able to um, to represent. Poor communities normally dominated by men. Um, I found other people. So I wanted to look closely in, into that, and I'm still doing it. So that, this is really the bit that interests me, women's yeah. women's yeah. history. Well, well, we'll come, we'll
2: pull all these threads together when everybody's said their bit. betany. you want to say a little bit about your... Journey story. into history. No, I managed to avoid the word journey. Your story. <laughs> OK,
4: my story. So I think um, I was actually drawn to history probably through the historical novel, in fact. Um, so I, my <laughs> mum and dad were actors, which, as Kate knows, always sounds glamorous, but actually means they're just out of work. So we spent... My entire childhood was beautiful. Everybody was just always around the kitchen table with lots of cups of tea and chatting. Everybody was very present. So we didn't go on foreign holidays. Uh, we went down to the Kent Coast. to a place called Hythe for day trips. So my holiday, again, beautifully, it was an amazing thing, I used to sit on this freezing (laughs) Kent coast with a lot of army widows um, in kind of wrinkly, still-knitted swimsuits. I'm that old, they used to make swimsuits out of wool. Um, And of course, because it was freezing, we'd pack a blanket and a thermos flask. But I took with me the novels of Mary Renault, Uh, And suddenly I was transported, age 12, into this hot environment. Hot in every way. Sexually, politically, culturally hot. And was just (laughs) lost in it. And she was an amazing... I don't know if you know about her. She was an amazing woman, a real pioneer. um, A brilliant mind. She was a nurse in the Second World War. So she watched unbelievable suffering so she was one of those women who physically kind of packed men's innards back in and stitched them up so she had a real sort of delight in humankind um and then had to move to South Africa with her female partner because they just couldn't really live in, in England as two women together. So she was brilliantly, brilliantly open-minded. And I love the, the description of herself. Somebody said, what are you like? And she said, I'm a party person, which I just think, you know, bring it on. We need, we need party people. So that was it's actually through novels, I think, How if wonderful. I'm really, really honest. Yeah. It just made me think there was this other world where other things yeah, happened yeah. and I wanted to um, investigate it. And it was very unfashionable then. So I don't know if you remember This was in the kind of um, 80s. And people, there was this weird notion that the year 2000 was going to come and there was a massive reset button was going to be hit. And all (laughs) the answers were in the future, and the past was irrelevant. Um, And so, you know, uh, history courses were being shut down. Uh, Classics was incredibly unpopular. So it was a sort of bloody-minded thing as well. I
2: thought, (laughs) screw you, you know. You're telling me it's not interesting, so I'm going to try
0: and prove that that
2: it is. And one of... I mean, you you have, obviously, you're very intrepid, so I love the idea that you never went further than (laughs) Hyde. So you spend most of your time up mountains and down gorges and, you know, extraordinary parts of the world. But you have also often written the real stories or the unheard stories of characters from antiquity, haven't you? Mm. Helen of Troy, for example, and other Mm. things. So Mm. can you say a little bit about what it was that made you decide to focus? Is it it Mary Renault? you know, in Mm. a way? It's that you've started to write in that thing because you feel the stories are not told or just...? Uh, Definitely partly. Definitely she was there um, on my shoulder.
4: It was also, I just thought, when I read anything from the ancient world... I knew that women had potency and agency, particularly in the Bronze Age. So, particularly we're talking about three and a half thousand years ago, and I just wasn't seeing that in anything that I read. So, I really consciously thought this is this is a story. You know, I think the historian's job is to tell stories that that aren't told, and even if that's tricky sometimes. So, it was something I really wanted to do, and also to be really honest, I always wanted to share that with a wide audience. Um, So I I thought that I just wasn't seeing any female historians on telly, for instance, at all. They just weren't there. And I remember going. I remember going to... I had a brilliant meeting with a BBC producer. And I went up and did this whole, sort of full of enthusiasm. I was talking about the women of Sparta. And the women of Sparta were amazing. Uh, you know, they were given the same rations as men. Shock horror. Whereas <laughs> elsewhere in the ancient world, women yeah, were given yeah, half rations. Food. That, you know, and they were allowed to ride in chariots. And they were occasionally allowed to go to council. And I did this whole sort of spiel, thinking, how can he resist this story? And you know that moment when you're in a meeting when you realise you're doing all of the talking? Those <laughs> kind of tumbleweed blowing through the (laughs) office. And uh, he said to me, I will never forget it, he said okay, let me tell you something. One nobody is interested in history anymore. Uh, Two, no-one wants to watch uh, history on television. And this was... It was really interesting. This was this sort of... uh, In the mid-'90s, so it was before that revolution, before Simon Sharma did did his thing. And then he said, and, my dear... And his hand went out, uh, not on my knee, but towards my knee. He said, nobody wants to be lectured at by a woman. (laughs) And this was... The 1990s, you know, it wasn't the 1890s. So, of course, (laughs) that generated a certain degree of fire i would say <laughs> in my belly and i just thought you know i'm gonna prove you, prove you wrong <laughs> so anyway so it was it was uh it was an act of um uh, righteous rage i say yeah. that
2: an act of righteous rage. you couldn't all tweet that yeah yes. yeah
4: so so that was so it was very you know it really mattered to me
2: and trying trying to do that and, and it wasn't easy but, but and, and you know and for both of you already look at you go so yeah, there we are uh, so is there is that element of proving people wrong yeah. and re- redressing the balance. That's brilliant. Kate, just say a little bit about yes. you because, you, you know, you do do both and yes. you know, I, we're, we're both historical novelists but it's just wonderful to hear Bethany kind of came in through our route yes, as well. Yes, marvellous.
5: So. Well yes, I mean too you know, those, those are incredible stories. I don't know how I can really follow it. Um, I... Uh, Became a lover of history. Uh, I grew up in a dormitory village just outside Wolverhampton. As anyone else here is from Wolverhampton or the Midlands here. Um, oh, got one! <laughs> um, and it wasn't very historic. Uh, so, and I was obsessed with history, and um, I, yes, I was, I was determined to find out more about the past. And so I built a time machine, uh, <laughs> and I, we had this great big box that the washing machine came in. And I covered it in a really... Everything from my craft box. So some scratch-and-sniff stickers, um, some cellophane, some pipe cleaners, and I wrote Time Machine on the front, uh, just to be sure. And then... I think I was about seven. And then I put my brother into it. (laughs) And he's about five, and I'm about seven. And... um, (laughs) I <laughs> might get up to demonstrate this. Like So so, um, so I put Jeff into it. That's my brother's name. And uh, and then I put it on the stairs. And I then I kind of rocked it. And I kind of rocked it. And I said to Jeff, I said, oh, look, Jeff, we're going flying. We're going flying. And they, oh, my goodness, here we are in ancient Egypt. And wow. And then we're going to go to Henry VIII's court. And then we're going to go to Victorian London. And I took Jeff on this amazing mystery tour. And, of course, Jeff kept saying, um... Let me out. <laughs> I want to get out. And I say, no, Jeff, no. You can't get out because then you will break the spell and you'll get stuck in ancient Egypt and you'll never get back to 1980s Wolverhampton, which obviously is a terrible thing. So... Uh, yeah. so, so uh, and that was a brilliant game. And now I feel like I have my own time machine because... I get to read these incredible documents and diaries and letters every day, and it, 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 you, you are back in the past. And, and then, of course, I grew up, and you start to learn history in school and move onwards, and then university, and you realise that that your essay on Tudor women is the one option that you do after eight other essays on the the economy and the Parliament and the and the Star Chamber, and then you get one essay on Tudor women, and not just that, but also how how frequently it was seen as the easy option and I'm afraid to say that we were often told not by anyone academic but it went around like wildfire and of course what you want is a good grade that if you write too much on women's history in any exam whether it was GCSE or A-level or finals if you write too much on them you will get marked down that was what we were all told each other that you will get a better mark if you write on nothing but you know uh, what hardcore uh, top-down male history and that was very Upsetting to me, I, I, you know, very upsetting, and I, I really felt that this has to, this has to change, and I have to say, I have been. This revolution in history that the women's history has so much more of coverage of a marketplace. It from everywhere, from books to TV to even in the cinema. Increasingly, I mean, it, even recently we were told that a female-led film can't be box office, and increasingly and now it is. A his female-led historical film. Students will never be told again that uh, oh, don't write an essay on no, women's no, history no, no, because true. then then you probably won't get a good mark for it. Yeah, so um, you know because then that, they'll mark you down. So so stick to writing about Pitt. Just write yeah, about yeah, Pitt. Yeah, and no, yes, good get on good Pitt and yeah, good old Pitt. Just do the pit in the yeah, yeah. and you'll, you'll, you'll get it.
1: Mean, no, yes. History, at least to me, is political. You know, who writes it, the society in which it was documented, who features mainly in it. And it seems like there are many people nowadays who get really agitated when historians reassess who and what was important in the past. So how do you address these voices who go around saying... You can't rewrite
5: history. That wasn't in the history books before. I think there is that. There is a protectiveness. People saying this is what history is. And there can be some pushback against women's historians, against historians of race, against historians of slavery. There obviously is this uh, bigger uh, Project in Cambridge to reevaluate and question how much the university benefited from slavery, and there has been a lot of anger about that people saying well what 's the point of this and uh, bringing up sort of myths saying well, well they were freely sold so well, that's not that 's not anyone 's fault so but I think we just have to keep fighting and in the end, we have to keep fighting, we have to keep saying, no women belong in the narrative, people of color belong in the narrative we can 't keep excluding. People of color from the narrative. There's a brilliant book by Miranda Kaufman, Black Tudors, reminding us how many people in the Tudor period lived ordinary lives, and that just hasn't been acknowledged. It just isn't acknowledged. You see, even in the movies, you see a crowd scene from the Tudor times. It's all white people. There's no people of color, and we just have to keep fighting and saying, no, women belong uh, in these scenes, in these lives, in these histories people of colour belong in these scenes and these lives and these histories children differently abled people all kinds of different people belong there it is not just the history that we've been told it is and i I think that the women's prize is really vital for that in fiction it it is rewriting some of the big stories in a feminist way putting the women back in i think what i think is so great is there were really is really very little women's history when i was a child whereas now I see children, when I go to speak to schools. say, but where are the women? What what were women doing? And I just think that the next generation are going to expect to see women, people of colour, differently abled, all kinds of different groupings, working-class history. They're not going to take the old, well, one lord talks to another, and that's all the history is anymore. I think there are going to be a lot of women... Or men listening to this
1: podcast right now who really fancy drawing from intriguing historical records and intriguing historical women from their own novels. So what's the process of your research as a fiction author? How do you find compelling historical narratives that you want to adapt for fiction? Well
5: I have two obviously I research nonfiction books and I research fiction books and it's two different sometimes they're linked, sometimes they're not. Um, I research is the most wonderful thing and it's the most frustrating thing because you can spend weeks and find nothing of interest, absolutely nothing. this document you think is going to be great and it's pointless. So you just have to keep sifting through the documents, sifting through the archives, sifting a lot of online, uh, sifting through the online archives, court records, diaries, letters, parliamentary archives, parliamentary acts, until you find what you want. And some of the letters and diaries will constantly surprise you. You will think it's a modern how they speak. And did they really do this? I mean, this is incredible. So... I I think research is the greatest gift, and whenever I'm stuck in either non-fiction or in fiction, when I'm stuck in fiction and can't think of a story, I just look at some of the archives and look at some of the sources, and the stories just spring out at me of all these amazing, rich lives.
1: Have you ever had that moment when you came across a historical detail you had no idea about before that really just captivated you and, I guess, maybe even changed the course of your research?
5: Well... My first book was on Emma Hamilton and it was a gem, it was a discovery gem that drove me to the book. Uh, I was researching my PhD on seduction in the 18th century and actually a lot of the seductive letters weren't very seductive at all. They were actually terribly dull and the same thing over and over again, the same sentiments. And then I came across one by Emma that she'd written to Nelson and it was amazing for the emotion, for the strength, for for the forcefulness, for the determination, everything bounced off the page and this letter blew my mind and I had to find out about her and how she got to that position I had to discover her rise to that position but sometimes you have to accept that your subjects just aren't going to tell you what you want uh, Emma Hamilton <laughs> rather painfully for me she met Marie Antoinette before Marie Antoinette was executed she was one of the last people to meet her before she was put under extreme house arrest and then executed and This is such a vital meeting. But Emma Hamilton just says in her letter, I met Marie Antoinette and we had a conversation. That's it. (laughs) That's all you get. And it was so painful. Then, even more frustratingly, Emma Hamilton goes back to Italy and goes on and on all the way home about the wonderful mountains and the sublime this and the sublime <laughs> that I just don't want to hear about the sublime mountains I've heard about them from every other 18th century traveller in the same way I want to hear about Marie Antoinette but subjects don't always tell you what you want and that's I think is a key part of a historian accepting that you're not going to sometimes find out everything, you can't know everything and you must not make it up, you might feel I've got, I think I know what they talked about but that will be for a novel, not for a history book. The
2: the thing is, um, for me as a historical novelist, listening to all of you, that it I it's almost about common sense. So I write about periods of history, and I am telling untold women's stories. That's my purpose in The Burning Chamber, say, or, you know, Labyrinth, whatever. But it was more realising that the women were there too, but you would not know. So when you read the books, that the only women, as I think you said right at the beginning, that appeared were queens, princesses, wives every now and again because it was a military history because it was a building history it was an ownership history it was a religious history and religious history is my interest but then you realise that all the men were away at war for 30 years so who do we think was running Kakasson in 1562 the men weren't there so everything that you realise you're told about history which is very male you, the minute you put common sense into it you think well that can't be right because otherwise no wood would ever have been chopped, no houses would ever have been built, no shops would ever have been opened. So couldn't you all just say a little bit about that sort of thing, about the idea that it's not that women weren't there, but maybe the business of history is deliberately partial, so has told certain stories over other stories. Because women. We have always been everywhere, frankly, because that's where babies come from. It turns out, you know. So apart from anything else, so what do you know? What do you all think about that? You know, in, in you know,
3: I think it's still there in in some ways. For example, when I teach, we go through Marxist history, we go through uh, the French, um, the Annales school, and every single time, every one of them, you don't see women, and then you have one part of the module where where it says gender history. That's where women are. And I'm always annoyed by that because yeah. when we start talking about Marxism, for example, you, we, we, we focus on those men, every single bit of it. So I think we're still reproducing it. So if you're teaching gender history, you are expected to talk about women. So I think we should kind of shift things around mm-hmm. and, and teach those big historical thoughts and historical method, methods by including women. And it's very easy to do, as you said. You focus on uh, lived experiences, testimonies, um, particular people. And it makes sense for most students to do it that way. But it's up to us to actually do that. Yeah. And
4: there's a lot. I mean, I kind of take the long view, because obviously uh, the antiquity and, and beyond that, so back into the Bronze Age is, is my period of expertise. And we've got a lot of catching up to do. So the last time I see a kind of genuine parity between men and women in society is around 3,500 years ago. And as you said, we're not there yet. So that is a long time for prejudice to build and for bad habits to be. Installed And there's a, you know, it's really fascinating. Exactly as you say, OK, obviously women have been there. Obviously we've been actually generally, uh, mathematically, more than 50% of the population. And you do see women there in the kind of DNA of civilization. So women are there, absolutely, they're represented. There's this brilliant statistic that of all the human figurines all around the world made between 45,000 uh, BCE and 4,000 BCE, of them are of the female form so women were incredibly visual Uh, for whatever reason that's happening that was the version of humanity that humans were choosing to To create and commemorate and that is absolutely across across the globe so that's really interesting so that tells me archaeologically they're there but then something happens and it's um Uh, We were talking about this, actually. I was having a chat with some some of the audience members before. This is like massive, broad brushstrokes, but it seems to be that we get greedy as a species. So the thing that makes us us is our ambition and our desire for what we don't have. That's what means why why we're all sitting here doing what we do today. So we, we crave disruption as a species. But what that also means is that, as I said, we're a very greedy species, that we want what we haven't got... And what you see happening in the Bronze Age, you've got these beautiful, stable, highly functioning societies making beautiful things, trading with one another, exchanging even philosophies and jokes on cuneiform tablets. But then we think, OK, so I'm sitting here in Mycenae, but wouldn't it be great to have Tiryns too? And in order to do that, you need male muscle. So you need a proper an army that is big enough to go and invade another's territory. And that is the moment, I think, when there's just because, and it's not because we become a militaristic society, because the, absolutely we're fighting and killing one another before then, but it's the scale of absolutely. male military influence that's needed. And acquisition. That, and acquisition that just shifts the balance in terms of what is valued in society. And it's from that moment that you see a single male smiting god in a, in a huge number of cultures becoming the premier god, whereas before it's rather brilliant thing, the first uh, time that Zeus ever appears in the archaeological records, he's these tiny sort of pipsqueak little guy like this, you know, about two inches high, there's no sense that he's dominant in any way, but then that yeah. o- over a short period of time, over about 250 years, that changes. So I, that's why we've all got a job of work to do, because genuinely there wasn't a matriarchy, there it wasn't a mother goddess. It wasn't all sort of, you know, we mustn't have rose tinted spectacles about. Not that, that would have been a good thing anyway, you know. It's but it, but definitely women had agency, and then that changes. So they're there, as I said, kind of in the DNA of civilization, but then in the stem cell of what civilization is, mm. something shifts, and that's what we've
5: all grown grown from from that moment. That's-, and that, that's very apt, Bethany, because of course we've got three books on the on the shortlist that deal with those yes. questions. We've got Signs for the Girls that talks about you know, I read the you know the the the, older, the stories of Achilles when I was a young girl, and of course, Briseis is just handed over to him and mm-hmm. she's beautiful and I oh that's, that sounds quite oh she's beautiful that's great and then you read her real life in well her uh, Pat Barker writes about what it must have mm-hmm. been like for and saying you know they'll never say that we were living in a rape camp which is what mm-hmm. is happening and then we same is happening in Circe uh, who's uh, you know who's always demonized as a witch and also in Milkman that what it's like for women during the troubles in this intensely militaristic zone so yeah mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah no it's so fascinating because I mean I think of um one of my favourite women's history books, which I do think had a cataclysmic effect on both women's history and the publishing industry, which was um, Amanda Foreman's Georgianne, the Duchess of Devonshire, uh, in 1997. Um, And before that, it really was really quite difficult to get a biography of a woman published. and It that was a, really only Antonia Fraser, yes. wasn't it?
2: She, she did Marie Antoinette Marie Antoinette. In mm-hmm. and
5: Antoinette. Um, you know, it's very interesting because Georgiana was obviously such a crucial figure in 18th century political life and Amanda Foreman really shows that very effectively, her political interactions, how she, how she was vital to politics. But, uh, you, you know, you raise some of the dismissive ways in which she was written about beforehand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've I'd seen uh, oh, just another 18th century broodmare and an 18th century super tramp uh, what I you know th- this is how a, a, a woman with huge amounts of political agency was written about Amanda Foreman you know I don't believe she got a gigantic advance but obviously then sold huge amounts of copies and I really think that um, that has been such a long time coming that even in 1997 a uh, sort of vital 18th century woman who crafted the politics at the time and it was uh, interacting with the, with the highest levels and, and her influence was crucial could be dismissed in that way. There are two classical retellings
4: on this year's shortlist. Why do you think this form had, continues to have the power that it does? I mean it's great for me so I'm I'm what's called an ancient historian so I'm a historian of the ancient world so how fantastic to see that these myths and legends and stories are re-inspiring people in the 21st century Um, I think there are possibly and probably a couple of reasons why Um, One is that these are, by definition, evergreen tales. So they were put down as myths, actually so they could reach people beyond borders and boundaries and across time. So they were chosen specifically to travel. Um, Also, there's this incredible irony with the classical world that women have always been 50% of the population, often slightly more than 50%. We have not occupied 50% of recorded history or influence. And the ancient world just didn't know what to do with women. Um, if you look at the kind of DNA of civilization, so back in the Bronze Age um, and earlier, women are there, they're really powerful and potent. Uh, it, it's not a matriarchy, it's not, it's not run by women, but women have influence. And that slowly gets winnowed away uh, until you get to the point in you know, classical Greece, for instance, where uh, women are described as kalon kakon, the, the beautiful evil thing. Evil because they're beautiful, beautiful because they're evil. Um, but they are there as characters, so they're very conflicted uh, characters within the Greek myths, and I think that's one of the reasons that people are so drawn to them, to try to unpick that and to restore their place back into the narrative. Can you talk a bit
1: about the wider social importance? of reframing these classic tales from women's perspectives.
4: Um, it, it's very important um, to do this because, uh, as, you know, women have always been there. They've always lived the experience of history, but their stories just haven't been told. So it's absolutely fascinating, actually, because of course it throws the male characters in the story into sharper focus as well. It's not; it doesn't mean that women are taking all of the limelight. It means that we're just allowed to understand how, as a species, uh, we're operating together. Um, and I, it, I, it feels to me that it's a beautiful way both to. Begin to have an interest in the past and to understand the past, and I think that fiction can do that. It's not history, but it can open the door to history. Um, but also, of course, it helps us understand our lives in the 21st century because you've got this filter of time to look at the big issues of the world uh, through. So the issues of equality, parity, opportunity, um, and uh, fulfilment. So I think that they, you know, I, I kind of really believe that writing is a kind of moral agent i think it's there to have impact on the world so writing with both fiction and non-fiction
1: this podcast is made in partnership with bailey's irish cream bailey's is proud to shine a light on women and their achievements by getting more books written by truly remarkable women into the hands of more people bailey's is the perfect adult treat whether in coffee over ice cream or paired with your favorite shortlisted book And now, back by popular demand, discover Summer in a Bottle with Bailey's Strawberries and Cream.
2: Just kind of bringing it back to the sense of how women get recorded. So listening to you all and the the, the extraordinary things that you're sharing with us, is there an issue about who has the access to writing, therefore? So the point of Georgiana and all of that, you know, so who gets to write the history? So whole cultures, nations... And many women are just written out because the men have got the pen. It's irrelevant. Do you think it that's seems irrelevant, yes. Right? Or? Um,
3: yes, if you look at history in the kind of um, traditional, perhaps European way, but history is also told yeah. and transmitted. Yeah. So in that sense, women will have been instrumental through the education in some cultures, through the education of uh, their children. And then even when boys later on uh, get closer to their fathers, um, they've already had that kind of basis that have been given, the family history or the community history that has been translated or transmitted by, by the mother. So, yes, who gets the pen is, is, is something that is really important for me because it means that who gets the pen is a way to, to do history, which is usually Western, and who gets the pen? It's the men, the Western man. So it's yeah, yeah. Two, la- two layers of uh, kind of discrimination, if you would. Yeah, yeah, interesting.
4: And there's often, what's really interesting is when that becomes recorded in a written history. Um, as we know, the story of the women who are being recorded is... is more often than not, highly sexualized. So, a woman who has power has to become a creature who is a sexual object. And so, when we hear about you asking about who's been written out of history, so there are two amazing women who you, you're, you're like a super bright audience, and I'm sure I'm very open minded, so you've probably heard of these. But there's an, a Chinese empress called Wuzetian. I don't know if you've okay, so Wuzetian should be a household name, so she should be up there mm. with. Marx and Clinton and whoever, you know, however many men we want to enumerate because she was one of the most powerful women in the world. She uh, ruled China as an empire. She was in power for 45 years. Uh, She really is the woman who salvaged Buddhism, so she was a Buddhist, and it was her promotion of Buddhism actually, interestingly, as a kind of thought process that allows women to have equity as well as men, that probably means it's why Buddhism survived. So she's absolutely incredible. But what was written about her was her enormous uh, voracious sexual appetite and uh, I have like to say like Catherine the Great like Catherine all, yeah, yeah. all of them Hella Cleopatra mm-hmm. uh, you know obviously it's Heller, fine for Helen, men it's fine for Henry VIII to get to as many women as it, he, it, he can exactly yes. but it's, it's kind of sold as this as this issue so you know the thing that people remember about Rosetti and if they've ever heard of her is that, that we're told that she took so many aphrodisiacs that towards the end of her life which obviously had some kind of form of testosterone in that she grew three pairs of eyebrows <laughs> she had a lot of <laughs> facial hair which actually I suspect is possibly true and good for her if she was wanting to kind of you know shag the eunuchs in her courts uh, but but that is what history cho- tol- chose to remember about her um, and the same with this other amazing empress called theodora empress mm. theodora from the 6th century in constantinople who started out life right at the bottom of the pile so she was an erotic dancer she was probably a prostitute as well but Procopius, who wrote her history, describes her as a brothel whore. And she ends up, again, being the empress of the Byzantine Empire, so in charge of a million square miles, the most powerful woman in the uh, eastern Mediterranean and western world. Um, but she, he, he writes about her and says that she, her greatest regret in life was that she only had three orifices with which she could satisfy men. You know? and yeah. that was, but, but, but what's amazing about her... And again, maybe she, you know, good for her, Whatever's, whatever kind of, you know, rocked her world. Is, is. But the amazing thing is that as soon as she has power, she enacts social justice, exactly what you were talking about before. Mm-hmm. So she sets up a safe house for prostitutes. She writes a paper on pimps about the fact that pimps are making huge amounts of money from prostitution. Uh, she uh, de- makes infanticide illegal. She sets up another safe house for single mothers, and this is in the sixth century A.D. So these are women that we should all we should all have been brought yeah, up yeah, on, yeah, their exactly, st- on their exactly. stories. So I think you're 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 absolutely right. You know there are many ways to tell history and I do and there is but there is no doubt actually in the kind of western tradition but also in in some eastern traditions that actually that it is the pen holders physically physically are male clerics and so what Mm. they're choosing to say is a a very lascivious version
5: uh, uh, and a denigrating version of those uh, those incredible women. And it's fascinating isn't it because for the many male rulers used uh, their huge sexual appetite as a way of forming power. I mean, that's yes. exactly what Napoleon does, and so many mm. kings... I mean, obviously there was some disappointment when Louis was married married to Marie Antoinette but he didn't have a mistress because it's seen as a power channel through them. Mm. So it's fine for a man, and it always fascinates me how so many women um, in history, even more recent history, are characterised by their looks. Mm. The Queen Anne, fabulous Queen Anne film, that Anne herself was actually... Rather a successful queen, she presided over to the Act of Union. She dealt with factional politics, and yet she, history damns her as a failure because of two things: because she failed to have a living child, and that's seen as a failure. But whereas there are plenty of male monarchs who didn't have a who didn't have an heir, but Charles II, but that, he's just a merry monarch. Whereas she is, if, if a woman's body does not do what it is meant to do, as in bearing children, then she is seen as a, a failure, certainly, and obviously that she became very great in terms of size, but not, I mean, not wildly any fatter than lots of other male monarchs, but yet but yet it's her size and her, and her failure to, to have children that becomes so key to the characterisation of her as a failure. And, you know, we, we have endless stuff about how fat Queen Victoria was when uh, you know, it really wasn't until the end of her reign. And, and who cares, really? You know, who cares if you, how fat she was or how fat she wasn't? But it, it, it really comes to matter, and that absolutely is a problem. And the, the women's reputations are so characterised by how their sexuality is perceived, the obsession with reputation, how their looks are perceived. And that's the problem for women in history as well. talk to you a bit more about
1: oral history. How does your work intersect with oral history?
3: Well, I work on memory. Um, So I do history and memory and politics. And when when it comes to memory, it really is about uh, what people remember from their past, reconstructions of the past, not necessarily accurate, but quite important for them. So there's an emotional side to it that is relevant when you're trying to construct a narrative of a community or a nation
1: decolonization is a term that I see quite a lot nowadays you know people talk about decolonizing the syllabus decolonizing their university um, what does that word mean to you what does it mean to you in practice
3: In practice it means having a curriculum that is inclusive uh, not just Western Canon uh, but you know there are fantastic fantastic um, uh, researchers from uh, the global what they call the global South people who are born here or born abroad who, who have different perspectives and therefore different backgrounds and the way to approach the historical text. And it's very important to include those if we want to have a broader perspective of history.
1: Do you feel like universities and historians are coming around to the idea of that? Or do you think it's been a kind of, you're still encountering some resistance to
3: that? Well, it feels like there's a lot of resistance, but actually the fact that we're having a dialogue like, right now, um, things are moving faster than the last you know 20 years or so so over the last maybe five years things have been moving a lot what do you think has changed in those last five years that have made the process speed up speed up is students
1: um, the students
3: yeah student movement student activism engagement and they are the ones who are pushing things forward so yeah it sounds like a
1: really exciting time to be a university student yeah. i kind of wish i could go back and do mm-hmm. and have a redo <laughs> i'm
2: having great fun <laughs> So how do we stop this endless channel of uh, women's history being lost? Are we doing
3: that, or is it just more of the same? Actually, I think that there, are, uh, there is another layer. Some women, we know them, we've heard of them, but we don't really know them. Yeah. Um, and I want to talk about them, because I, I don't want to finish to end this this evening without mentioning the women who really, really had an influence on on yeah. my life yeah. as, a, as a historian. They're all dead, of course, but mm-hmm. it, it still doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So probably <laughs> studying history, I think. <laughs> that. So I wanted to talk about um, Quinzinga and I wanted to talk about very briefly about uh, Anna Julia uh, Cooper. Uh, yes. Quinzinga of Matamba and uh, Ndongo, she was born in the 16th, well, 17th century, and she was the daughter of a king, she, uh, her, bro- her, her, da- her dad died. The brother came into power. He died very shortly. She was supposed to inherit the throne. No, the male people from the court said that she couldn't do that because she was a woman. And what she did, instead of fighting directly, she was an incredible diplomat. So she, one by one, won them over very quickly. Diplomacy, making alliances... Manipulating whatever she needed to do, um, bringing uh, outsiders to kind of counsel these people, bribing if needed. Why is she important? Because she fought against Portuguese invasion in what is known nowadays as Angola. And at the time, the Portuguese were conquering west uh, west coast of Africa, and and starting really, uh, uh, you know, this, this um, deporting uh, African captives. Of course, slavery existed before the arrival of Europeans, but it's chattel slavery and across the Atlantic, and she fought against them. So what she would do is uh, do this, and she found that you know the best way to do that, perhaps, have intel. So she created her own army, mercenaries and intelligence services, um, launched them uh, into the, um, the Portuguese and the Dutch, and then uh, it wasn't enough. She needed an army, so she set up her own army, uh, recruited people. She won some battle, lost others. Eventually, she capitulated. She had to because she wasn't uh, strong enough. The Dutch and the Portuguese made an alliance and she, she got defeated. But just picture something. You have a 60-year woman on the battlefield fighting the Portuguese. I think that is <laughs> that badass, is really. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, is is just, that is just Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, 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 I, love, yeah. I love that. Fantastic. The last one, quickly, is Anna Julia Cooper. and That's why I did my PhD at La Sorbonne, just because of her. This is a woman who was born uh, in um, 1858. Just that date is, uh, slavery was still in the, the US, uh, the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, 1865. So she was born from a, a slave owner father, white, and an enslaved mother, black. And her idea was that emancipation was through education. So what she did is uh, find ways to educate herself, uh, get enrolled into all sort of courses. It started like manual uh, sewing and things like that. Started getting closer to the male, um, having access to books. Eventually, I'm going to go really quickly and explain what happened. She would ar- arrive at Oberlin a School, and you had um, ladies' classes and gentlemen' classes, and she refused to do the ladies' classes. but they, She was so vocal and annoying, they put her into the gentlemen' classes. <laughs> the next thing you know, she has her BA, Three years later, at the age of 29, she had her master's degree in mathematics. She didn't stop there. Activist, educating women, uh, specifically uh, black women, uh, in the most impoverished places in the state. She thought, OK, I need to expand my horizon. What if I went to Paris? (laughs) Went to Paris. Um, Age 56, she started a PhD. Ten years later, at the age of 66, she got her PhD from La Sorbonne, and the title was something to do with how the French, view, uh, the French views on, on the slave trade and slavery. And I had to get into that institution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to, yeah. do, to do like her So, yeah, three women who... And, uh,
2: well, I, I think, it, I mean, you've both already shared some names, and I think that's fantastic, because it's not just remembering, it's speaking these names mm-hmm. and making them commonplace so that everybody knows them. So one of the points of the Women's Prize for Fiction is precisely that, to build up a library of extraordinary books by women, but also extraordinary... Comments about other women, Kate. Is there one unsung heroine that you'd like to to do? You've you've obviously mentioned Georgiana, and you have done great work with your you know, I, Elizabeth. And-
5: I am a, a huge fan of um, as of Christina de Pizan, who was the first woman ever to earn a living by her pen to support. Um, she was she made a terribly good marriage, but uh, he he died, and so she had to support her mother and her children. Just through her pen, and, she's, and she wrote this marvellous book, The Book of the City of Ladies, in which she counters misogyny. She says, she just takes the misogyny and says, okay, so we're meant to be very stupid, very awful, uh, absolutely dreadful, but how strange it is that we have all these great examples of women from history. Um, some of them were mythical, or, or, and some of them were religious, and some of them were goddesses, and we have the Virgin Mary in there, but there are some, I think, you know, I think Theodora's in there, you know, why, why is it that these women are so sick uh, why is it we've suffered so much misogyny when 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 there are these, so she gives these, all these examples. It's this onslaught of examples. So I think it's one of the most incredible um, counters to misogyny, even you know even in the early medieval period. Uh, and I think that is you know just as just as you've been showing, this is a key way of countering by saying, look at these women and what they can do. And this is you know, tell us again that we're that we that we're lesser, that we that we should be excluded, that we don't understand, that we are that women are you know trivial minded because there are. She just gives so many brilliant examples. And one of the. I'd love to th- update one day. Exactly. <laughs> the, the themes that has come
2: out from the book bar all week, from all the women who have been kind enough to, to come on the panels, is data. Mm. Know things. So that when someone says, a woman's never done that, you go, well, actually, you'll find. And that, that has come out in every part from every piece of history. So we're going to do a few questions before the panellists give their, um, you know, one book that they'd like to recommend. So, um, so if you've got a question, put your hand up and uh, don't be shy.
0: Hello. Um, I think your view on that history has been viewed by whoever has the pen is so interesting, amazing. I think in this day of social media and digital, I think social media in its own right Is a pen of history. So, do you think with social media, women in history will be more recorded in a positive light, or do you think what basically what effect do you think will social media have on history now? That's
2: interesting. That's a really good question. What effect will social media have on history? The veracity of history.
5: I think, well, I think, I mean, obviously, social media is an incredibly effective tool and has certainly been for feminism. I mean, I, I, mean, I think I don't know how, if Me Too would have spread so effectively mm. and, and with so much, so much strength without social media mm. and, uh, you know, that it became an avalanche that no one could, uh, could deny. Um, so, and I, and obviously, there are lots of historians writing about women's history on there. And, um, uh, you know, but obviously, Social media has a has a double-edged sword. It can be very hard for women. It can be a very hard place for women because there are so many sort of ideal lives being put out there. But I, I and I think that there is a sort of double layer, isn't there? There's social media, which is all incredible and gives you and can and use a huge platform and a voice, and yet there are still the platforms and the voices that are colonized, that are paid for, that are that are given power within our society and and given influence. So I think uh, that the, the more the, perhaps the traditional ones, whether or not it's um, lecturing. Parliament or having an effect on public policy, the historians who are picked out to advise various politicians or um you know, the the T V which Bethany is breaking <laughs> moles on every day. So I think it's it's definitely both because but obviously, you know, we can you know, we, we can say whatever we want on social media, but still a lot of the policy is up to mm. government and that's yeah. that's all we need to get our our, our, our fingers on them, <laughs> yeah.
4: and it's a re- I and mean, it's a brilliant, brilliant question. It's, and as you said you know, there's a potential that the kind of weapon for change is in all of our pockets, so that we can be there. I think it's actually relating to your question about well, your your anxiety about the name heroin and heroes, mm. um, and it's really, I, I, it's so interesting because if you think of a heroine. Quite often, you think of somebody who either needs saving for some reason or who dies. Yes. There's a sort of yeah, yeah. martyr <laughs> <laughs> aspect. That, that is exactly what
2: it is for me, yes, isn't it? as a writer,
4: a historical fiction. Yeah, writer. It, you know, which is extraordinary. Whereas the hero, and really interestingly, I always think that etymology helps. Mm-hmm. And the etymology of hero and the Latin word for man, vir, are exactly the same. So they're totally the same root. And what it meant, the, note, the, the very kind of early Proto-Indo-European word, hero, meant someone who saved society. And that was by definition a saviour of society. Women made society, and men were there again, just as a kind of muscle thing, to save it. So, so if we can invert that, and if we can all become the heroes of the, the digital media, so we are doing the saving rather than being saved, then that, that yes. it becomes a very powerful Excellent. tool.
0: Another question. I guess it's more of an opinion, and I just wanted to hear what you'd say um, to respond. It's sort of... You were saying how, in history, women... It's easy to make sort of idols out of them. And I think that's part of the problem. I think the fact is that people hold women... They either don't hold them in any regard whatsoever, or they idolise them to the point that they're something that has to be kept sacred and safe. And, you know, the idea of being pure comes into it. And I think if you're looking at religion, for example... Hinduism is one of the i guess you could say a transgressor of that, for example, we have huge amounts of goddesses who men are so willing to you know pray to ask for favors, do all of this stuff. but when it comes to the state of women in India, arguably they're they're incredibly suppressed and it's the idea that when it's dealing with something that is mythical and has power to help you, it's fine, but when it comes to actually wanting to value the women who are in front of you and very much so real, it's again it's you know, it's about sexualizing them and seeing them as inferior beings. So what do you think about that? The fact that religion can it can raise them to regard, but it can also just completely break you down as well yes well it's a huge yeah that that adoration
4: is a is a huge problem and people feel and you're absolutely right there's been really interesting mm-hmm. psychological studies done on that because in goddess dominated cultures you know you'd think you'd exactly we'd look back on them or even indeed mm-hmm. for uh, catholic europe where where for the Maybe. Virgin Mary was adored, and if somebody was to look at it for externally, they'd think this is an incredibly female loving culture, but as you say, obviously you give their adoration to something which dare I say doesn't exist, and then, but then you feel that you've you've done that, and you put them on a pedestal, and you can only fall from a pedestal so um, it's it's an it's an incredibly acute and apposite um, opinion I think there's one there's a little sort of Chink of um, uh, sort of a salvational thought that comes from that, that if you look at the deities of wisdom through the story of the world, they're almost always female. Mm. And I love men. But dare I say, there might be a reason for that, that all society have <laughs> gone, OK, who are the ones that really... I'm sorry, I'm now being sexist. I'm not sexist. So I really, really love... It. But they just, I just think it's of great interest, yeah, that. So, really you know, so I think we can maybe allow the goddesses of wisdom to remain immortal, but remind everybody mm. that actually it's, you know, the women who are alive who are sacred rather than uh,
3: those who are in a divine realm. Mm, that's very interesting. Uh, th- you know, I just thought certainly that, yes, wisdom... Look at the representation of nations. Women are always representing countries and, and things like that. Yet again, they put mm-hmm. at the pe- on a pedestal as a symbol of the nation. I'm, I'm thinking about Marianne, uh, French, mm-hmm. uh, French uh, a French symbol, and how disturbing all this is tied to femininity and the perception of what a woman should be. Uh, she, she looks luscious you know she looks there's something the sexual element is also there and at the same time she looks like a fighter who, cannot, who can't really fight you know with her you know clothes all, all over the place so i think <laughs> i think there's something there that is quite disturbing and i'm thinking about it just just right now because you you mentioned that uh, there's more to yeah digging perhaps making the links between nationhood and construction of nationhood with women's uh, image and, and the, uh, the notion of uh, religion mm. coming into it. Yeah, more, probably true. somebody has probably done the research, but I just don't know.
2: Well, I, I'm not at all surprised that the hour is whipping by, or indeed has whipped by. And um, so I'm going to ask you just why... You've chosen this book, each of you. So, Kate, why don't you start? What what have you chosen? Okay, I'm
5: going to be concise. I have chosen this book, No Surrender, by Constance Maud, uh, from 1911, published by Persephone Books. And this, I... I uh, very briefly, uh, this is one of the few suffragette novels that we have. She was a key part of the suffragette movement and wrote a novel about suffragette. She wrote lots of novels, but this is the one about being a suffragette. A young mill girl meets an upper-class girl when she tours the factory, and they become suffragettes together. And there's an incredible scene of force-feeding here. And Emily Wilding-Davidson, who obviously uh, it's debated whether she threw herself under the horse or whether she was just campaigning, but, but uh, on, the, on the track, she rec- reviewed this book. And I chose it. I didn't. Cho- it's a great plot, but I wouldn't say it's matchless prose. Everyone. So um, yes, if this isn't if Austin. but. I wanted to really to flag up uh, how much the novel can be a, 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 an agent for political change. And it can change minds and it can change hearts, sometimes more effectively. And I, think, I feel this book's been rather forgotten, but it did have a huge effect and was very widely read at the time. So obviously the suffragettes uh, you know, pushed forward so much by themselves. But this is really aiming at the upper class female reader who the upper-class female woman who was resistant to the suffragettes, who felt that her life as a pampered upper-class woman would change if equality was demanded and she had to go out to work. And it's aimed at them, and I, I think as such it really underpins and reminds you of all those great novels that have been political documents and political agents for change, particularly you know the novels about women that have persuaded us that, that women, the that, 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 that novels about women in the say, 16, in the 17th, 18th century, 18th in particular, that persuaded us that women had a heart and should be listened to. So that's my book. Brilliant.
4: brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Um, and so I've chosen Sappho um, in any no. edition. <laughs> <laughs> um, not, not an unsung heroine, but a heroine who, or a hero who should be in all of our lives. Um, if I had my way, Sappho would be taught in every single school because I think Sappho genuinely tells us what it is to love. So she is the first uh, author ever in history to describes love as bittersweet, although she's slightly more realistic and she says it's sweet and then bitter. And, you know, <laughs> if that's you need to learn that when you're 13, and I think Sappho is, uh, is the way to do it. So kind of Sappho in all, all schools, 30. please. <laughs> <It's> brilliant. <laughs>
3: Okay, I've chosen POW because it's a story of um, race, it's a story of migration, it's a story of love, it's a story of, uh, it's a social commentary, and it's a story of a Chinese uh, Jamaican. Um, you you don't hear much about it, but the the Jamaican uh, society is multicultural, and you have uh, the people of Indian descent, you have people of um, African descent, and you have this, and this novel had made me cry. I laughed a lot, and I was so, so enthralled with it that I I traced the, the... the writer, and <laughs> her down, and I got her on the phone. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, because I wanted to know if there was something else after that, and why did she do this in that page and all that. Oh, she was, oh my she was word. lovely. <laughs> and please do read it, because it really is about a country in the making, in the eyes of somebody who's of Chinese descent in the Caribbean. Wow.
2: Well, that I mean, that they were brilliant. I mean, that was so brilliant. I would say all three of you are women who are making history. You are making a difference. You are. As are you, Kate. Archaeologists. Oh, okay, yes. I'm. You can barely speak anymore. But you know, um, <laughs> so you know. And I think that's really, really important. And the aim of the prize is precisely what you've listened to. We haven't really been able to do anything more than scratch the surface of how many amazing women we don't know about. But every time any of us learns about somebody, pass it on because that's the way that things change. You've been absolutely incredible. Um, do go and check out the podcast, because it's the same principle. If you are all talking about the podcast and sharing it with other people, then people who can't be in London, who can't travel, who are not part of this group tonight, will hear these stories as well. Um, and that's very important to us as well. Mm. Thank you very much. But ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> thank you to Kate Williams, mm-hmm. to Brittany News, and to Oliver our okay. Thank yeah. you very much. Okay.
1: I thought what we just heard was fascinating. And to be honest, when they started mentioning the names of various women I'd never heard of, I think it even sent me down a little potential Wikipedia spiral where I just have to find out more about these women. And you know, that's especially great considering I wrote an entire book series called Forgotten Women and there's still more women to discover. I just think it goes to show how for most of human history, women were just on the sidelines, not because they weren't doing stuff, but because their achievements were never properly recorded. And I think Olivette said something amazing during the panel, which was who gets the pen to write our history? And if nothing else, I think that the women on that panel proved that this time it's the women's turn. It's time to take over. I'm Zing Zing, and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, produced by Fremantle live from Bailey's Book Bar. Click subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. And to help amplify the voices of women our top priority, please rate and review this podcast. It's an easy way for us to get to the charts so more people can find us. And huge thanks, as always, for listening.